Transforming Bodies, a judgment-free zone where Trish answers all your burning questions about aesthetics procedures. Find out what and who is the latest and greatest and gain clarity on what options are out there to leave you feeling good in your body. Hello listeners, it's Trish Shaman here from the Transforming Bodies podcast and today I've got something really different for you. We'll be talking about labial, vaginal and sexual function surgery and I've got Dr. Aseka Anuma who is a cosmetic gynecologist who specialises in labial, vaginal and sexual function surgery and medicine and we're going to have all these questions answered today. So welcome Dr. Anuma, how are you? I'm very well Trish. Awesome. Um, thanks for um, having a chat. Oh, thank you so much for joining us today. So first of all, tell us, how did you get, like, tell us a bit about your career. Like, how did you get started in, or like, what made you, first of all, choose this this area of medicine? It sort of chose me. Um, in it, I, I actually got into the whole field of obstetrics and gynecology because I really liked delivering babies. There's nothing like seeing a baby being born, being the first person to touch it or delivering a baby. And that's really what got me into the the specialist field of obstetrics and gynecology. I don't Mm -hmm. deliver babies now. I I tend to fix all the problems. Um, uh, And in the early days of my training, I actually thought that when women had gynecological surgery, particularly um, where they had problems with their pelvic floor functioning, continence, prolapse, sexual dysfunction, that all the types of treatments we offered them um, were not very good because I'd be in a clinic with 100 patients in England and I'd be reviewing a whole series of patients from different specialists operating lists and none of them seemed particularly happy after surgery until I worked for one particular person, a chap called Mike Hemans, who's now retired in Birmingham, who was one of the top three urogynecologists at the time in the UK. And he took me under his wing, which was the best thing I don't know why he did that but we got on like a a house on fire and he just taught me and the interesting thing about his technique was that he's very much about the patient uh, the anatomy and functional outcome and it was my it was really my stepping stone to urogynecology and pelvic floor medicine surgery Um, but nobody even then took much notice of uh, sexual function and cosmetic or aesthetic gynecology. And in fact, even now, there are very few specialists uh, around the world who uh, focus on that. And I think it should be a core part of gynecology training, but there's nowhere in the world in any training program where sexual function and aesthetics, uh, the cosmetic component are are taught. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, funnily enough, I was, <laughs> I was at an International Urogyne Association meeting in about 2000 and a uh, long time ago, 2004. And um, it's a great meeting, but um, I was tired. And uh, I ended up just completely inadvertently in a French bar where I was told some other uh, people were specialists from meeting. I was tired and my wife said, you just go. And um, uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, I went and I met a chap called um, Jack who's at the time ran and still does run one of the top um, aesthetic gynecology clinics in Santiago, Chile, and also met a couple of guys, um, John Miklos and Rob Moore, who are urogynecologists of international standing in um, Atlanta. 
anyway, they took a shine to me. We were talking, we had very similar interests about sexual function, pelvic floor, and aesthetics. And um, I had thought about training with David Matlock, well-known in, in Los Angeles, um, with laser vaginal surgery and sexual function surgery, but he didn't really train that many people out of um, UK at the time because he had lots of people going in that direction. Anyway, John Miklos just flipped his phone open in the middle of a noisy French bar and said, um, David, I've got my friend here, he only just met me, and you're going to train him. And that's how I really went down the road of, um, of specialist training and advancing sexual function and cosmetic surgery. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and, and now I'm a preceptor, I teach it, um, and I lecture nationally and internationally. I've just returned from a trip to Santiago where they had their first intercontinental meeting between the European um, Aesthetic Gynecology Society and the Chilean Society, which is held in Santiago. And that was an excellent meeting. And one of the things it did, apart from me showing information um, and expertise with a whole diverse group of people from Europe and also South America and North America, was that there is an increasing group of people who take quite seriously female sexual function and aesthetics and pelvic floor function. Um, and that group is growing steadily. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Good. Um, it, sorry, go on. Oh, I was going to say, it's funny because it's such like... Um, you used to hear so little about it and you still hear not very much about it, but it is kind of creeping its way to becoming more of a talked about topic. Hey. It is. And look, that it is good. It's still very slow. Imagine a, a scenario in 2023 where if you use the word vagina on social media, you can't. You, you, they will take off um, what you've posted. And vagina is just a normal part of the female anatomy in the same way as penis is a part of the male anatomy. And you, you've got a chest and an ankle and an elbow and a head and a neck. But yes. for some reason, society has got it in their brain that uh, the concept of a woman's vagina should be hidden in a box and not opened, just peaking once in a while, um, which is very sad because it disenfranchises women and is a significant obst obstacle to them getting good healthcare and yeah. getting good information. Yeah, well, it can be, it's really, uh, for a woman, it's kind of like, it's a really hard topic, topic to broach. But then once you start to talk about it with other women, you know, people are kind of a bit happier to to open up but but I know for, like you've written a couple of books like uh, and and which is really great because it's really informative and it's a great way to to help women who don't necessarily want to speak to anyone else they kind of read want to read it about themselves or discover all the information about themselves you know themselves sorry for themselves without actually speaking to anyone so do you want to just like let's let's run through about like your books like what's in each of them because I know that the first one you did was what um, so you want a labiaplasty? Yeah, I've been meaning to write um, a book specifically for um, patients. So anybody who's thinking about um, their pelvic floor and getting help, because there's lots of information on the internet, but it's all, all very, very limited. 
and like just a paragraph and stating that we can do this for you, but it doesn't tell you anything else about anatomy, the condition, um, what might benefit you, what the potential outcomes are, uh, what the potential um, bad outcomes are. Um, and I and so I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to write a book, having tried to write a book, uh, the first book I tried to write would have been maybe about seven or eight books worth, and nobody would have read it because I was thinking about the pelvic floor as a whole in terms of incontinence and prolapse and so on. And after a couple of years, I thought, well, nobody's actually going to read this. So let me just focus on an area which is topical, really misunderstood, um, an operation which I'm really good at, which I enjoy doing, and where I think the, when it's done properly, the outcomes for patients are excellent, just not in not only in terms of their physical health, but their psychological and mental well uh, health and their ability to engage in relationships. And that was labioplasty, labial surgery. And so that was the first book I wrote um, specifically for women. And it, it really is, as I've always said, not a book to sell the procedure to any individual, but for one that if you're really thinking about it, here are the things you want to know. And it begins with um, really a, a little bit of knowledge about the anatomy, because I get um, numerous inquiries from all around Australia and internationally. And if often they'll say, well, I'm wanting a vaginoplasty. And when you explore it a bit further, they don't want anything to do with the vagina. They're, they're talking about the vulvalaria, in other words, the labia. So terminology, is important and understanding of anatomy is really important and those are two areas which makes it very difficult for the patient to convey what she wants and for the doctor if they're not careful to understand what that individual person is requesting so anatomy is important and the first part of the book addresses vulval anatomy in the main and then i go on to talk about the different types of complaints that women have that leads them to thinking about having labial surgeries. Um, and in my experience, um, most women who want a labiaplasty have a functional component, in other words, discomfort. If you look at uh, media, you would be forgiven for thinking that most women who want labiaplasty uh, want it for cosmetic concerns and therefore it's frivolous and they should be dismissed. Of mm -hmm. course, nobody dismisses men and women who want to improve their looks above the shoulders. But if it's anything to do with below the waist in a man, that's okay too, like penile implants, etc. But if it's for a woman talking about the vulvo-vaginal area, they do tend to get, um, um, well, short shrift, not, not very much attention. Um, mm -hmm. It's all too hard. Yeah. So the, the, the book then goes to on to explore different types of um, labiaplasty surgery, different approaches that different groups of people use, the type of people that might be doing labial surgery, um, and also examples of outcomes. So not just talking about the labia minora, the inner labia, which is the most common area that women often seek help with, but also the labia majora, the perineal area and the mons pubis of the areas surrounding um, the labia minora. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so that was my first book. Yeah. Uh, the second book. Um, the Ultimate V. Yes, it's, it's very yeah. funny because at the time that I was, I began writing the labiaplasty book, uh, one of my close friends actually said to me, you know what, don't write this. 
you should write what the book that is now the ultimate V, because she said to me, really, women just want to know globally. They don't want lots and lots of detail, but they want to know about all the things that happened to them in a succinct manner. And I said, well, I could do that, but I want to write the labiaplasty book first. And I did. But now I've written The Ultimate V, and I, and I actually really understand now with how it's been received, why she was advising me to write The Ultimate V first. Mm-hmm. That's because The Ultimate V is a book that starts off by saying, in fact, there's no such thing as the ultimate V, the ultimate mm-hmm. vulva or vagina or the vulva vaginal area. There isn't an ultimate uh, in the global sense because everybody's anatomy and presentation and the their perception of their own genital area is completely different. You can't, you, there's no standardization at all. And a lot of the problems that women complain about, if you look at it in terms of uh, visually, in terms of anatomy, it's just a case of there are differences. And for those people, those differences can change over a period of time suddenly or have always been there, but they haven't been able to address it until the time for whatever reason was Mm -hmm. right for them. Mm -hmm. So for any individual person, they do have, I believe, their ultimate V. And it is the function and cosmetic appearance of Mm -hmm. the vaginal area which works for them, which makes them comfortable, which makes them not embarrassed, which allows them to engage in relationships, to allow them to have the light on if they want to, um, to, to walk around, to dress well, to be confident that if they meet somebody, they're not ashamed about how things look, mm-hmm. feel, or work below. And that mm-hmm. is any woman's um, ultimate V. Now, the things that they may need to do to get to that place, again, is very different because whereas one person might have an issue with um, the length of the labia, another woman might have an issue with scars and tears at the entrance of the vagina as a result of trauma such as childbirth or uh, an instrumental delivery such as um, forceps. And another woman might have a medical condition where the labia refuse, so she can't engage in intercourse. Another might have a lump preventing it from prolapse. Somebody might feel that the vagina is too open at the entrance and the lacks inside and they're getting squishy noises, which they're really aware of. And that they fear that in a social setting, somebody else can hear. Um, and so the, the problems are numerous mm-hmm. and many women will have more than one complaint um but again what works for them will be unique to them so this book really says okay here are the common types of problems that i see in my working practice that makes women ashamed about their pelvic floor area and these Mm -hmm. are these are the causes this is the presentation then i use um de-identified um emails um from patients using their own words to describe the problems that they need help with. Because those words are often in some ways repetitive. I can be asking a patient in front of me or on the phone, on a video call from another part of the world. And the words that they use to describe a particular issue are, I could almost take the words out of their mouth and sometimes just run with it for them. 
and particularly sometimes patients will start and you can see they're getting embarrassed yeah and they stop and they yeah. say and I sort of say okay well maybe I'll help you and I'll just throw some words out there and see if any of those uh words are what you're trying to get out yeah and I throw out one or two words like um I can't feel anything or it feels it just feels as if he's in there but I, I can't engage I'm not feeling part of it feels too loose and they're nodding and say yes yes and the and it's it's really a cathartic experience to be talking to another human being and helping along the process of just describing the problems they're having and then they start to tear up they start to cry mm -hmm. and they're not crying because they're anxious or depressed at that particular point in time they're not actually crying because in their own words, they have found somebody who's actually listening to what they're saying. So at that point, I actually haven't offered them anything. I haven't done anything. I've simply sat down and listened. And because I, I've listened over and over again, and those stories have been repeated, it doesn't make me a genius. It just means that my ears are open and I'm willing to listen and I understand where they're coming from and what they want to achieve. And that is quite, it's been one of the most interesting parts of my journey, um, going down this road of sexual function and aesthetic um, gynecology and medicine. Yeah. So just so, like, so that people listening can kind of um, not have an understanding, but, but let's go through, like, the procedures one by one, because I think that's what people are kind of interested in. And, like, like me, for example, what's the like there's labiaplasty there's vaginoplasty like what like what's the difference between that for a start because I have people saying oh I need a um a designer vagina or I need a labiaplasty or like, like let's start with the first one so labiaplasty so what is that surgery okay so the labia are the tissues on the outside of the vagina and are part of the vulva so if we look at the area from uh, all around the vagina, the bits right at the top, the mons pubis, just the, the, that bit of fat just above, then you've got the, the labia below. The labia is split into labia majora, or the outer labia, and mm -hmm. the labia minora, or also known as the inner labia. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the tissue that comes down below and tracks down towards the back passage. You've got that, the area which we call the perineum, which is below the entrance mm -hmm. to the vagina. Mm -hmm. Now, the majority of women who request a labiaplasty, and use that word labiaplasty, usually want reduction, uh, so reduction in size of the inner lips, the labia minora. Mm -hmm. They usually want it, them to be symmetrical, reduced, and not longer than the protuberance of the outer labia, in other words, the labia majora. So they're more tucked in and neat, using mm -hmm. patient's words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I've the vagina... I've definitely Sorry? heard those. I've definitely heard those same words. I've heard neat. I just want it neat and tidy. Yeah. Um, and then the vaginoplasty could only refer to surgery within the vagina walls. 
Mm-hmm. Now, technically, a vaginoplasty means a modification, a surgical modification of the vaginal walls. It doesn't tell you whether you're you're making it tighter mm-hmm. or looser. Now, mm-hmm. in practical terms, the majority of women that I see in my practice who want mm-hmm. vaginoplasty surgery, so surgery within the vagina, want the vagina to be tighter because they feel that a result of of um of pregnancy, childbirth, genetic abnormality in their connective tissue, um, pregnancy even with that delivery, so hormonal changes, that the the vagina is too loose for them. Mm -hmm. And it's not always a complaint of inability to orgasm because that, that in itself, although linked, is a separate issue. What they want is the sensation, the increased friction without discomfort, so that when their partner is in them or when they're using a, a sort of an instrument, then they can actually feel that there is something there. And so some, for, for most of me, that really relates to the internal part of the vagina. And for the majority of those women, that also includes the diameter of the entrance so in other words that muscle at the entrance the perineal body which keeps the vagina tight and Mm -hmm. closed rather than appearing open so someone it's quite sorry to interrupt but i just no no go you you then said sort of labiaplasty and vaginoplasty and then you sort of at the same time you said now designer vagina yeah now designer vagina is a bad term <laughs> I know. It's a, it's a really know. Good, no, no, no. I'm not giving you a hard time. I'm just saying it, I, I actually quite like the term designer vagina. Um, but the problem with the term designer vagina is that women who, who say they want to design a vagina, you can't actually tell what the problem is and what outcome they want. It's impossible to tell whether it's the labia, the mons pubis, the perineum inside the vagina or at the entrance of the vagina yeah okay so if we're being pedantic and i think we do need to be pedantic and get the anatomy right so that our communication is more accurate between doctors and between patients and doctors and between women who might become patients but also discussing it with their friends so they they're on the same wavelength we need to say Vagina is within the vagina and vulva is outside the vagina. And once we get that simple distinction, a lot of the problems of miscommunication will disappear. So design a vagina doesn't tell us anything at all. Um, you can design a vagina inside to be wider, looser, tighter, or use um, medical instruments or um, things like paleo-rich plasma to increase sensation, blood flow, improve the chance of orgasm or intensity of orgasm. But again, designer vagina sounds like a nice term. It's often misused, abused. People laugh at the term. It doesn't tell us anything. So I think uh, uh, we shouldn't use it. We should be more anatomical about the genital area. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I agree. And it's funny. It almost starts from... Uh, just because you're a woman and you've got one doesn't mean you even know anything about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and we're not kind of taught from the time where we're young. It's not something that we kind of talk about too much or share information 
um, about except perhaps with, you know, a close girlfriend or, or, you know, and that's not even all of us. Most people probably wouldn't. But um, it's still quite taboo to even talk about. Oh, it's not your, all yeah. still. I, I had a patient, a delightful lady who in her seven, mid-70s, and I had operated on her with a combination of prolapse and incontinent surgery. She came back for a final review some four months after surgery. It's great, happy. And I discharged her and she was a, she got up, said thanks very much, walked off to the door, and then turned back and said to me, Dr. Numa, can I ask you a question? Of course I said, sure, no problem. He said to me, I don't know where my clitoris is. <laughs> and I've been meaning to ask you, and I've never had the confidence, but you've treated me well and so on, and I'm going now. I need to ask. I said to her, can I show you? And so we went back into the examination room with my chaperone, and I showed her where her clitoris was, and she went left with a big smile on her face. But that is a problem. Yeah. Even 70 year olds, my younger patients in their 20s will often use terminology which shows that they do not understand their own anatomy. In hospital, when we have to put catheters in patients for a variety of reasons, even some of the best nurses don't know where the urethra is, let alone the patients to know how to catheterize the patient. So lack of knowledge about female genital anatomy is a significant problem. Yes. It's a big impediment to getting good care. Yeah, and the more yeah. any woman knows her about her anatomy, her own anatomy, the 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 more protected she will be in case there's any changes. But the more likelihood that she can access better care because she she's using the right terminology. Of course, and so what about because so, I'm just going to talk about surgical procedures first, then we'll talk about non-surgical stuff that you can have done. What about sexual function surgery? I know you've kind of spoken about that a little bit now, but um. What sort of options are there for people that might be just having problems and not specifically knowing what it is? Right. So I know that's a pretty open-ended question, hey, but it's it's a great open-ended question, uh, Trish. It's it's great, but um, I can summarize it in principle really easily. The two main problems that I see for women who talk about uh, issues with the vagina are it's too loose. Mm-hmm. It's not like it was before kids or when I first started having uh, sexual intercourse. Um, and you hear these sort of really unhelpful comments by some doctors who say in response, oh, so you want to be like a virgin. I suspect, uh, and I'm not a woman, I'm a man, but I suspect that no woman really wants to go back to being a virgin. What, what my understanding is, after having this type of conversation several thousand times, is that what women tend to want is to have a vaginal diameter that is akin to what it was when they first started having sex, not when they were virgin, but when they've been having sex, and before kids. In other words, it was close-fitting, they could feel, uh, they could squeeze, they were engaged in the process because of that physical interaction. So I'm not talking about psychology, I'm not talking about relationships, I'm just talking about the physical act of sex and the ability to engage in it because you have sensation. Mm -hmm. And again, that's different 
the orgasm of which, although linked, is another matter altogether. Now, the other problem that some, some women have is, of course, they cannot um, engage in sexual intercourse because of pain. And pain can be for a variety of reasons. And in medical terms, we call painful intercourse. We use a, the, the word dyspareunia. Mm-hmm. And then we talk medically about deep dyspareunia, so pain right at the top of the vagina. And we talk about superficial dyspareunia, pain at the entrance. Now, pain at the top of the vagina, um, at the t- what's at the top of the vagina? Well, if you've got a uterus, it's the cervix, which is the beginning part of the uterus. And that uterus has got supports. And if you don't have a uterus, then you've got, uh, you've had a hysterectomy, then you've got the what we call the vaginal vault, just the top of the vagina, which is closed off. So if you've got deep dyspareunia, again, it is often positional. And the position that usually causes uh, the most discomfort is when the partner is deepest. And that deepest position is often if the partner's behind. Some people say, well, I can only have sex in a missionary position because if you're behind, it really hurts. And then you say, does it, what does it feel like? It's sharp. Does it feel like he's hitting something? Yes, it's like he's hitting something at the top. And that's when you understand as, as, as a surgeon that, in fact, what they're hitting is the top of the vagina, which is prolapsed, or the uterus, which is prolapsed and moving up and down. And that stretch is not interpreted by the brain as pleasure. It's, it's actually pain. It sets off the pain receptors. Now, at the entrance to the vagina, um, one of the most common things that causes pain is scar tissue. But scar tissue can arrive without any known preceding event. It can actually be the outcome of surgery. So you can have surgery to fix something and you end up with pain because you've got scar tissue or it's too tight. Or, But the most common, one of the most common reasons for painful intercourse is actually an outcome of childbirth, where you've had a cut to facilitate the baby's head coming out, or you've had a tear of uh, the vaginal walls, particularly the entrance, or you've had both. You've had a physiotomy of the cut, and you've torn all over the place. And trying to repair that entrance to the vagina, which is torn, lacerated, bleeding, and swollen after the baby comes out, is really challenging and in more than 90% of cases, unsatisfactory. Why is it unsatisfactory? Because in, in most cases, particularly in public medicine, the people, the, the doctors who are involved are called in by midwives to deliver babies when it gets a bit tricky are junior doctors mm-hmm. who have no experience in, in you know, basic reconstructive processes, let alone one where the anatomy has been shredded. Mm-hmm. Um, and and secondly, they're often women are just pat on the head and say, oh, we just put a couple of stitches in here, tack it together and be fine. And yes, it'll stop the bleeding at the time, but they always end up with scar tissue. They often end up with painful intercourse and they often end up with the anatomy being distorted. So they end up, they can't have intercourse because it's too painful and they don't want to engage in intercourse because of the pain and they don't like the way it looks. So you've got scar tissue. Yeah, yeah. So pain and lack of sensation are the main two issues we we deal with. There are others, but they're less common. Yeah, yeah. And what about, um, um, I I know we've got like people that have their hymen, um, I don't know, repaired or whatever. Because I know it might not sound like a lot of people that it's it's a thing, but it's a thing. Hymen's a, yeah, hymen's a, 
is a thing. So there are two, okay, so if you say a hymen surgery, nobody says that. They tend to say a hymenoplasty. And hymenoplasty or surgery of some kind of a hymen can mean two different things. One, you are excising hymen. Mm -hmm. And the other is you are repairing the hymen. Ah, so, repairing is what I mean then, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so repairing the hymen is, is a function of, I believe, uh, misogyny. Okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if, it, if we didn't have cultures or religions, or that seem to demand that women are Virgo intact and have a intact hymen when they get married, there would be no, there'd be virtually no requests or very few requests, shall we say, for hymen repair surgery. Mm -hmm. um, and in a country like Australia, with um, a gradual increase in um, immigrants from different parts of the world, you you see an increase in number of requests for high men repair to satisfy their mother-in-law cultural or religious <laughs> um, requirements for uh, marriage. Now, most people think that it's just Muslims uh, that make these requests, and in practice, they are the biggest group. But there are also Christian groups who who have the similar requests. Um, and once in a while, you, you get people who request, who request hymen repair, not for religious reasons, but as a quote-unquote gift for their partner. Mm -hmm. So that's repair. But again, the majority of them are related to cultural and religious backgrounds, where mm -hmm. for the woman who does not have an intact hymen because she had been sexually active before marriage the implications for her and her family are dishonor and even death mm -hmm. not insignificant at all those problems absolutely you know it's funny what, what you said about um people coming in from overseas because um I, i've got an italian background and i'm first generation italian and my parents came out here in the um late 50s early 60s or actually probably late 50s, both of them. And um, it was a requirement that, you know, the girls had to be virgins when they got married. And even when I got married at the age of 19, my mother-in-law at the time, who was um, of Greek ethnicity, she wanted to see the sheets for that very same reason. So it was a big deal about, um, um, a big deal about that, even in, like, even not just, like, like you said, not just Muslims, but that was just Italians and Greeks. Correct. In, in the 80s, that's crazy. That's right. It, it, is, it is crazy when you think about what you're really asking. So it, I had an odd experience as a, as a, as a just a, a traveller um, many, many years ago, over 30 years ago, in, in, um, on a trip to, uh, I, I won't say which country, Let's just say it's a country in Europe, okay? And uh, I met a group of guys who 
seemed to like me. I was one of the first um, black people they'd met and they got on very well. They thought I was very cool. I wasn't, but anyway, they were, they were really good. But I, so I, I, I chatted with them over a course of three or four days. And what I found was that they were not allowed to have relationships, that's like marriage. But if they did, uh, um, it was fine as long as they didn't get caught. And if they got caught and it was the wrong family, then they'd be in trouble. But if they didn't caught, in terms of getting married, there was no impost on them to show that they were a virgin. Uh, virgin. Mm -hmm. There was no problem at all. The same couldn't be said for their sisters. So if their sister, and they were very protective in a, a inverted commas protective, but their sisters who were expected not to even talk to boys, let alone um, engage in sexual activity before marriage, because that would lead to dishonor. Now, interesting enough, the reason why I mentioned this story is that the, the, the importance of that was drummed into me by the fact that in, a, in that society where being homosexual was taboo, those guys, and this is what they told me, were much more likely to engage in male-to-male -male sexual contact, not perceiving themselves as homosexual, rather than having sex with a female in case they needed to marry them or come into conflict with their family. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the problems are actually quite significant and cultural and embedded in the society and how the society in different parts of the world behaves. And, mm -hmm. and, can, and, the, and those societal um, pressures do travel with groups of people when they change country. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, no, it, it's funny. It's just so, like, it just seems so foreign to most people, but I, uh, I can understand it. Yeah. and the need for it and whatever. So um, another thing I was going to ask you is that the, the next one I was going to talk about was the mons pubis reduction. So that's something yes. that, like, tell us a little bit about that because I know a lot of people out there that have got what they, what do they call it. There's actually a name for it, which I won't repeat it. But <laughs> <laughs> there, are um, only, there, there are always, always terrible names for things that, appear to be wrong with the female genital area yes, yes. and there are never any terms for the female genital area yeah. which are colloquial which are good and that tells you <laughs> how pejorative evolving but the mons pubis is um interesting because it's an isolated area of the vulva which sits above the labia majora sits above the vagina and but sits below what we would say is the lower part of the abdomen so there'll be a whole group of uh, and you can tell there's a clear demarcation because when, um, and we're talking about women, not men, so when women have an abdominoplasty where they've, uh, you know, got excess fat or lost weight and then they have the surgery with a scar right along the lower part of the abdominal wall, when they have that surgery done and all that excess uh, skin and fat is removed, it does nothing to the area below that because there is a natural um anatomical junction between the lower abdomen and the beginning of the vulva so that if you pull up on the lower abdomen it doesn't pull up really hardly at all the mons pubis the mons pubis is its own area and in fact the only part of the immediate anatomy that makes a difference to how the mons pubis looks or how it sits or how prominent it is that to a small degree is what happens with the labia majora the outer labia 
-hmm. a large isolated area, which is um, on the skin, you've got hair cells on the skin, and below the skin, you've got a whole lot of, of fat, effectively. Mm -hmm. um, and so for some people, when uh, they, they drop weight successfully, they may or may not have an abdominoplasty to tidy up the skin, but they've got this isolated area, the mons pubis, which remains, you know, like a, 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 a pouch in mm -hmm. front of them. And, they, and so uh, they have, they're uncomfortable getting into a bikini. They're uncomfortable wearing trousers because of this mound that they are very aware of that sits in front of them, even yeah. if the rest of the anatomy is, is within a normal um, BMI, sort of body mass index. So even I, I've seen numerous patients who have never been overweight um, and are slim everywhere else, but have got this isolated uh, mound um, in front of the mons pubis where it's enlarged and the fat just doesn't go, even if they try to do all sorts of slimming techniques. Yeah, yeah. No, I, that's um very very common yet totally it's it's and it's a real popular um procedure when people have had um a tummy tuck because it tends to kind of just lift everything up and make that bit pop out. It does, but the the interesting thing about it is that most the majority of women who have a tummy tuck who could also do with a reduction of the mons pubis don't have it done because. Mm. There are not that many people trained to do it, and it's not offered. It's almost like saying, oh, well, yeah. an afterthought, whereas it may be the more, most important thing to the person concerned. Some um, surgeons will offer liposuction, mm -hmm. and liposuction will be effective in reducing the subcutaneous fat. Mm -hmm. The problem, though, is then you've reduced the fat, and what are you left with? You've, you, you're left with... Um, wobbly excess skin mm -hmm. and so what do you do that you have to go back and do a surgical procedure to tighten up the skin and reduce the excess skin so mm -hmm. you're, you're you're doing a double whammy two procedures liposuction but you're going back and as a second potentially second procedure or a second procedure on the same visit and then doing a surgical a more surgical procedure um, excision mm -hmm. the approach mm -hmm. i take is to say well forget the liposuction so, so what you're saying is, if if you were to do a mons pubis reduction, that would be done with surgical excision. I would, okay. Because I've seen numerous women who have had liposuction and, and then come and see me and say, um, "If the skin is all floppy," and they say, "Okay, so what have you had done?" I had liposuction, and yes, well, it, it was not as prominent, but it's all squishy and moving the skin. And there, <laughs> there are non-surgical skin tightening. Um, technologies there are but none of them are good enough to shrink the excess tissue that you have in a mons pubis area when you've had the fat removed when it's been when the mons pubis has been enlarged yeah so the approach that i take if i see a patient for the first time who wants who feels that the mons pubis is enlarged and it's clinically demonstrable is a surgical approach i don't do liposuction in their patients because you're adding in a procedure which you're going to consume time with and you're going to charge the patient for, which, in my humble opinion, has no value to the with in terms of the outcome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so let's talk about non-surgical stuff then, because I, I've noticed that there's a few things um, that you can actually do non-surgically to improve, you know, I guess 
labial, vaginal and sexual function all around. Um, so the first one, like, improves sensation. So what's that about? Well, it sounds all right, right, but what, what is it? Exactly? <laughs> there, there are lots of ways of improving sensation, but the two classical ways of improving sensation are you make the tissues tighter so there's more friction as long as there's no discomfort. Yeah. Um, but the, the non-invasive way is to say, okay, what we have in our armory that improves nerve function, blood flow, and might improve the response of the so-called G-spot. The G-spot. Yeah, I think G-spot is always something that you can discuss forever with a thousand different professors. But I think in practice, some women have it and some women don't. And I believe in the women that have it, it's not always in the identical same place. Anyhow, that's not the story. But um, one of the non-surgical treatments that is really quite effective and uh, I use quite a lot in my armory of treatments is actually platelet-rich plasma, which involves uh, taking some blood from the person you're going to use it on in a particular type of tube and spinning it in a special centrifuge. And what that does is put all the red cells, which you don't want at the bottom, and leave the plasma, the yellow fluid at the top, and that plasma is there is the platelet-rich component. You then take it and then you inject it back wherever you want to. So when I do it, funny enough, I do <laughs> um, faces. So I faces and I got into faces from doing the collar touch that nobody need, need, seemed to want to do. But anyway, and training other people to inject. So anyway, um, the most one of the common areas is PRP, platelet-rich plasma injections into the face, but we also do it in the vagina. And people have coined different terminology for it. So David Matlock, when I did my training with him in 2005, he used and trademarked the term um, G-spot augmentation. Um, and Charles Reynolds um, more recently has um, trademarked the term O-shot, which is a series of injections in the so in the G-spot area and in the area of nerve supply of the clitoris. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what you call it. It's the approach where you put in a natural product, the patient's own um, fluid containing uh, cells that are engaged in rejuvenation, improvement in blood supply, fibroblasts, include improve the collagen, the elastin, and nerve function back into wherever you want in the vaginal walls to try and improve sensation. The other area which it is has proved really valuable in my practice is just is not sensation alone. Some women, when you operate on the vaginal walls, are prone to scar tissue formation, and many already have presented with scar tissue as the problem that has scar tissue and rebuild and put things back together. Some people will have a predisposition to predisposition to form more scar and platelet-rich plasma injected into those areas. Um, either before surgery, immediately at the time of surgery, and sometimes after surgery, it reduces scar tissue and improves healing and improves good sensation as opposed to pain or discomfort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Now, there are other agents, similar um, effect as um, beta-rich plasma, and some of those things are products derived from 
amniotic fluid. So amniotic fluid is the fluid that you get from the umbilicus in babies and you can produce yeah. it's harvested down and then there are commercial pre preparations of these products around the world and some mm -hmm. are artificial some are natural but they all have a similar type of um outcome mm -hmm. and and some people are using are they using botox or, or filler Right. So they are, and again, they've got very, very different indications. So let's deal mm -hmm. with the issue of Botox in okay. the vagina. Botox in the vagina is a no-no. Okay. Or any woman who wants to improve sensation, feedback, orgasm in the vagina, is just don't do it. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. Okay. Okay. So the place for Botox in the vagina is really to do with painful intercourse resulting in vaginismus. Now, vaginismus is a condition in which you have involuntary contraction of the muscles of the vagina in response or in anticipation of pain and can mm -hmm. be so severe that it makes the vagina impenetrable. It just locks up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, Botox is one of the things that can be used to prevent a muscle function. So in the same way as you might put Botox in the face to depolarize those muscles so that you don't get wrinkles because you can't contract the muscles, you put Botox in a specific way in the levator muscles of the vagina so that it doesn't contract in response to pain or anticipation of pain. Mm -hmm. And that, that can work, doesn't work for everybody. Um, and it has to be placed really carefully because obviously if you get Botox, migrates down towards the perianal area there around the anus and you depolarize those muscles then until it stops working and it will stop working because it's not a permanent treatment um, then it, if it affects the muscles around the perianal region then you might have le fecal leakage for up to three to four months mm -hmm. so a if you're going to have botox in the vagina for pain and vaginismus find yourself somebody who's got a lot of experience Yes, that um, sounds really scary. <laughs> if you're like, well, like anything, but, you know, particularly things like Botox in the vagina. Um, yeah. And you also mentioned, um, you know, lost me now, the, before you talked about... Oh, filler. Talking, oh, I, oh, thought, I filler. about filler, yeah. Oh, right. Now, filler, again, very topical in the face, lips and so on. There's lots of hyaluronic acid and other types of fillers around, um, which we won't get into. But in the vagina... Fillers can, are, are increasingly used by some practitioners, um, mainly in the vulva. So, and again, in the specifically in the labia majora, the outer labia or the outer lips. Mm -hmm. And you tend to see this at the moment more commonly being offered to older women where they've lost fat in that area. The, mm -hmm. the labia majora have deflated the skin is a little, little more loose on the top and they want volume back in to the mm -hmm. labia majora for aesthetic purposes and mm -hmm. uh, not often functional um i don't really like it and that's my own personal view mm -hmm. so there's no point anybody at all contacting me and say will i put filler in their vulva for them yeah i'll just say if you really want that find yourself somebody else 
I'm yeah. trained to do it, but I won't do it. And uh, it's my personal bias. And the reason for that is you're, you are, we are affected by our experience. My experience very early on, before I started doing much in the way of filler, after I trained, was that I was actually seeing patients where I was doing complicated surgery to remove either bits of filler or the fibrosis and the fat that occurred, leaving them with dimples, unevenness, and more often discomfort. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, as I was doing that, I didn't feel comfortable putting fillers in, and that yeah. and that's just me. I'm sure yeah. there are lots of people who have got good experiences with filling the vulva, but I'm not your person. Uh, yeah. your <laughs> that's okay. Yep. That's no, a, totally. sure. I'm not the patient either. <laughs> no, no. Um, we can agree on that one. And, and then fillers in the vagina. I think fillers, non-natural uh, products in the vagina in this day and age, um, particularly in the environment of all the discussions and litigations that have gone on with mesh, it's completely different. But again, fillers, artificial products in the vagina, mm-hmm. yeah, well, I'm a bit yeah. too cautious. People yeah. do do it. I think there are plenty of other natural stuff which works really, really well, like such as PRP, amniotic fluid, and all that of kind course. of stuff, which yeah. is safe, works really well. Uh, no. Of course. Well, tell me, um, and what about, so So, tell me about pigmentation because uh, like some people think, well, what? Like, so depigmentation. Depigmentation. So yeah. <laughs> this, is, this, this is almost but not quite in the too hard basket. So let me say this. If somebody came up with a, uh, a really, really good solution for depigmentation, which was permanent, mm-hmm. they would clean up the market. It doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason is because of how pigment is, is formed from the melanocytes, the then uh, one called tyrosine, um, and anyway, so from the basal cells of the skin, uh, you get this uh, process and lo and behold, the pigment melanin, which is dark, it comes to the surface. Now that is a continuous process and it is difficult at the moment, impossible to target all those pigment cells so that they do not produce any more me- melanin. Yeah. So all the current treatments, and there are some reasonable treatments, often made by pharma or cosmeceutical companies, um, will make products for which they target different parts of the process of production of melanin in the skin. And so applied properly and for a long enough time, a lot of patients will see um less pigmentation more even tone um but they may need to have almost certainly repeat treatments in the future because of the ongoing nature of production of melanin okay so anybody who wants depigmentation uh, needs to be committed to pursuing that treatment in the long term and continuing it um mm-hmm. now the Cosmeceutical treatments are not the only ones. There are, there are medications that also interfere with the production of melanin, mm-hmm. which are taken by a tablet. One of them, the product I'm not going to mention in this, on, on this, is actually, you, is a, there's a product that's used very commonly by gynecologists for um, 
for helping women who complain of heavy periods. Mm-hmm. And the way it works is work, it's what we call an antifibrin and litigation. So it disrupts fibrin production. But, uh, but it's also very good as a depigmentation agent, but it's mm-hmm. not licensed for use for that in this country, mm-hmm. in Australia. Okay, um, got it. But there are a variety of other products. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, the one of the most effective um, products that you can put on your skin that will give you a really good depigmentation effect is also very toxic to the skin. Mm-hmm. And it, women still seek those products out in countries like Australia, New Zealand, um, the US and the UK. You cannot get those products legally. Mm-hmm. But in many other countries around the world, you still can get them. And the problem is not only are they, they can they be caustic, but not only can they burn the skin, but used in the long term, they can be cancer causing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the most effective treatments we've got at the moment in terms of skin application are the most detrimental to long-term health, but they yeah. are still commonly used around the world. Yeah. So yeah, so depigmentation in the vulval region it um, can involve medication um, used off license, uh, prescribed by a doctor who knows what they're doing, um, cosmeceutical products, some of which are very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you can. There are a variety of lasers, uh, and the whole field of lasers is a, a, a talk on its own. But you can use a variety of lasers, which will result result in breaking up the melanin on the skin, and then making the skin appear lighter, more even tone uh, for depigmentation action. And sometimes, what you really need to do to get a, a really good outcome with reduction in risk is to use a combination of oral medication, uh, a contact skin application, cosmeceutical and laser in a, in a, a fashion that's detailed and um, for that individual patient. Mm-hmm. But the important thing is that any patient who thinks that they're gonna get a one-off treatment and that's it, is wasting their time. They've got they've, it's got to be important enough for them to commit to repeat treatments, prolonged therapy, into and put yeah. up with the cost and that the time that it involves. Of course. And all right, let's let's finish off with the big one. And I know like we've been talking for ages and I could talk to you all day, but um bladder problems. Sorry. Which, Bladder problems. Ah, can we have a, a bit of a talk about that? Because for sure, like because it, yeah. it just seems to be like uh, I'm like there's a lot of women that you just that that well a lot of women, especially around like a lot of my girlfriends around my age, are always and I have a bit of a laugh and you know, like you know coughing or sneezing or laughing or whatever where they just have a little bit of um leakage. Now a lot of I mean I guess it's a bit more. Um, prominent these days people not women know that it can be fixed but it can be fixed can't it you don't need to look like that yeah, do you we we have an unfortunate situation where um companies that um advertise ads are allowed to advertise with impunity mm-hmm. and so what that does is normalize it so it says to women yeah okay you leak uh, yeah you're getting older you've had children what do you expect just put up with it and Imagine the, the the situation where you've got a 
professional rugby player goes break their shoulder coming down off a fall and they say to them oh well never mind it's all part of the parcel of being a rugby player what did you expect and send them off no what happens to them is they get carted off they get uh, the the most appropriate imaging the most appropriate kind of treatment surgery by the best surgeons and then they get to the best rehab people and lo and behold they're back on the field in two or three months you want you think to yourself how on earth did that happen last time i injured myself i couldn't do anything for ages no, yeah. because those people get the best care. Mm-hmm. The problem with um, bladder dysfunction is that it's been so normalized that it's not it, it's not perceived as abnormal. It is mm-hmm. abnormal. It is mm-hmm. not normal to be leaking when you're on the trampoline with your kids. It is not normal to feel the urge to go to the toilet and before you get to the toilet, wet your clothes and your underwear. It is not normal to be having sex and either fear leakage or leak on orgasm. They they are abnormal. Mm -hmm. But the way it's portrayed is that it's all part and parcel of being a woman. It is not. It is not. And there are things that numerous things you can do about it. Uh, But again, one size does not fit all. The bladder is really, really complicated. You can have in leakage you can have difficulty emptying your bladder you might go to the toilet 20 times a day instead of you know seven six to seven times during the day you might be getting up two or three times at night instead of going through the night without getting up you might have pain when you're emptying your bladder etc so that on all of these things problems with the bladder often require different solutions which means investigate and then say okay well what do we tackle first if there's more than one bladder problem? But it means that somebody's got to take you seriously when you say there's a bladder problem, including leakage, and you've got to take it seriously as opposed to saying, well, I'm just going to wear a pad. Mm-hmm. Now, statistically, there is really fantastic evidence from um, US, Australian, UK, UK, and European studies, which show that your individual chance of ending up in a nursing home is directly related to whether you're continent or not oh my god that's so funny to say that because that's just happened to us in our family yes and that's the reason we couldn't yeah yep yep but and it's not about wearing pads and they're bigger pads and then pads that are you know like big ginormous things and then being soaked there are lots of things that can be done for bladder dysfunction mm-hmm. available at this moment in time. Now, specifically about stress incontinence, involuntary leakage, when you cough, sneeze, exercise, anything that increases intra-abdominal pressure, including sex, the, one of the biggest impediments to women seeking care for that has occurred recently, and that's to do with the issue of mesh. Mm-hmm. Right. So... Before mesh became available as a sling, the sling procedure, yeah, um, twenty years ago, most of us who did, uh, who trained with expertise in incontinent surgery, were doing things like um, a procedure called the birch colpo suspension or a fascial sling, or uh, and those sort of operations. Now those uh, those operations are are specialist area so if you qualify as a specialist gynecologist 
to do that, you've got to get extra training because those surgeries are quite complicated in investigation, treatment, follow-up, uh, specific. Yeah. So very few people did it. And then when the slings came along, um, people found that they were as effective in terms of how minimally invasive patients were on their feet, longer, short, shorter duration of time, but most importantly, a lot more general gynecologists trained to do it, which was good. The problem is that a lot of the surgeons who trained to do it still didn't have an understanding of the anatomy of the pelvic floor that those people who trained to do the most complex surgery before did. So when there's a problem, they pat their patients on the head, this is my belief, uh, and say, there, they, well, there's no problem, or and they wouldn't refer them on to new, somebody who knew what to do, and their techniques in doing them may not have been completely appropriate. Nothing much would have happened necessarily with that specific area alone had we not had the disastrous situation where, again, I think the wrong people were using mesh products in the pelvic floor specifically for complex prolapses. And again, the, the similarity is the same. People in the past would never have touched the mesh products and wouldn't have done the complex pelvic reconstructive surgery unless they had the training. The mesh kits came out and because there were kits, people sort of learned to use them even without that understanding of the pelvic floor, which was even more important when putting a foreign product into it. And so patients were then getting some poor outcomes and patted on the head and told it's nothing to do with us and not referred on. And then you, and that leads on to the situation in which patients then uh, had disastrous outcomes, um, litigation occurred, and now you can't use mesh in many countries around the world, still available in places like France and other places. Yep. Products on their own have their own issues, but in the right hands, significantly less. So they're going back to slings, which are really effective uh, and still available in Australia, and which I still do. Women are much more cautious about having it done because of the bad press associated with them, which has been conflated by the issue with mesh for prolapse, which is a completely different product. Okay. Different use. And so they're completely different, but everybody hears the same thing and they put them in the same basket. So yes. women, and, and then you might say, okay, well, forget about the sling. Why not go back to doing birch, proper suspension, fascial sling procedures? We do, except fewer people can do them these days. And, and they are bigger operations, in fact, with more complication rates, mm -hmm. in more increased risk of blood loss, et cetera, et cetera. And they're still relatively safe. But if you read the the... I use for the purpose of consent in my patients, a very confronting um, sheet, which I got out of the UK, originally trained in British Society of Urogynecology, um, and NICE, uh, uh, NICE, which actually lays out fairly fluorescently all the bad things about doing the sling procedure to try and put you off. And I give it to my patients and say, if you want me to do this, you need to read that and then sign it for me to do it. And I am very clear, those complication rates are very few in my hands. Mm -hmm. I can say that and I can I have audit to show that I have a really co low complication rate, but I give them confronting material because we live in an age of litigation. So if you don't want that operation, then you can consider having a birch. But if I give you the one for birch corpus prevention or fascial sling, it's an open cut, we're dividing the muscle or the rectus sheath fascia, et cetera, et cetera. There's risk of nerve injury, blood vessel injury, et cetera. Would you like that one instead? And because 
we're living in a day of consenting patients and giving them accurate information. Sometimes they'll walk out and say, look, you know what, I'll put up with it. And yeah. then they say, well, is there anything less invasive that you can do? Not birch, not fascial sling, not. And then we go back to the old days, because in the old days, what we used to do was an anterior vaginal repair. An anterior vaginal repair used to be 40 years ago, the gold standard mm-hmm. for, for stress incontinence with a 70% success rate. Things like birch, fascial slings, sling procedures have a success rate of 90%. So women often say, often for the surgery, which they perceive has got less risk and no foreign products, but they, which they accept has got a lower outcome, but that's what they want. Mm-hmm. Or things mm-hmm. like bladder neck buttressing. So incontinence, particularly stress incontinence, there's a problem of perception. There's a problem of social media uh what it means and normalizing it and then when you get down to the niche group of actually doing something it's actually now really a complicated area for patients to navigate what the different types of stress incontinence surgery are what it means for them and what the risk and the outcome for them is yep yeah really yep. difficult yeah oh look that's just been like <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's like information overload, isn't it? It's just like, whoa. Yeah, no, that, that, was, that, that one was stepping into devil's territory, bringing that yeah. urinary dysfunction at the end. That's, uh, yeah, I know. I, I know. You know why? Because it's so funny because we, we were just talking about this last night, Um, you, you know, because like, oh, my God, I've got to go to the toilet. Oh, my God, I didn't make it kind of thing, you know, like from having a laugh or whatever. And it happens way more often than what we think. And it's just like you just said. It's not normal for that to happen, you know, and if, if that is happening, you can choose to get it fixed or you can choose to put up with it, exactly like what you said, hey. Little experiment that mm-hmm. any of your listeners should conduct, just mm-hmm. it's fascinating. One day when you're outside in a public area and you're sitting down, probably during the daytime, so maybe I'm going to tea or coffee or hot chocolate or chai latte, whatever it is, mm-hmm. just sit there. If you've got a view of a public area, spend 20 minutes just observing that area, just gently. And you will, at some point, see a woman that goes past and has a cough, but she'll stop and she'll cross her legs, then look around, then keep moving. Yeah. And you might see in the environment, you're having dinner, Somebody gets up to go to the toilet and all of a sudden they stop in the middle of their tracks and they cross their legs. They wait a few seconds and when they feel confident, they start moving again. So common. If you, it's like, you know, you're, it's like cars. If you're thinking for some reason about a Volvo or Mercedes, yeah. you'll see them. All of a sudden yeah. you start seeing them mm. because you're paying attention. Now, if you mm. have that in your mind, you'll actually see people doing that all the time because. Yeah. That is what women do to try and prevent themselves from leaking. But in terms of... I do it all the time. I do it all the time. I'm just like, if I laugh or somewhere or whatever, like all the time. So, yep, I know that's true. (laughs) Lasers can be good for mild stress incontinence in the vagina. Mm -hmm. Laser, PRP, even if you... uh, But, you know, for severe incontinence, not so good. For mild stress incontinence, laser, PRP, often a good option. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to, next time I'm, I'm out in town, I'm going to go and check it out. I'm going to say, who else does what I do? I just kind of like hide. And, and the amount of times the amount of times I haven't made it is beyond a joke. And even my kids laugh about it. And I say, oh, my God, here she goes. <laughs> but anyway, it's good to know that it can be done. It's just whether you choose to or not. That's absolutely true. It's a case of choice. 
I've got to say, look, thanks so much for today. It's been absolutely fantastic. Before you go, tell us, because I agree with what you said before. I reckon The um, Ultimate V is actually a book everybody, every woman should read just for the fact to understand the the function and understand their own body, um, you know, even that not needing anything done or, or wanting or whatever. It's just a really good resource book for women. Um, so where can people buy The Ultimate V or So You Want a Labiaplasty? And give us a quick um, rundown. So in short, you, you can't buy it from Amazon because it's got too many pictures of vaginas and labia on it. Yeah. Um, they wanted me to put um, sort of diagrams, I'm sorry, but that's not yeah. what my yeah. interest is. So yeah. it's self-published and you can get it um, through my website. Mm-hmm. Um, and my website um, is well. To me, I'll give it to you. Do you want me to tell you what it is? Yeah, go on. Tell me. I'll <laughs> tell you. Oh, I don't even know my Do- website. Dr. And there's a it. section there that you can actually look at products and you'll see the book. The book um, there you go. And a whole there bunch of other stuff there as well. That's it. Yes. The two awesome. books are under the product section of my website. And, and you can get e-version. it as an e-book. e-book. There's yes, an e-book, sorry. Which you, mm-hmm. can down, you can download um directly from that site but if you want a physical copy you can just leave us a note and we'll post one out to you wonderful look thank you so much thank you so much for your time that's great no it's been great great chatting as 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 usual you have a a wide breadth of knowledge and an advocate for female pelvic floor health and everything yeah beautiful that's great it's great good thank you so much and ladies um or, or gentlemen whatever if you would like to go and see um or check out dr aseka Anuma, you can just check out his website dranuma.com.au you'll find a whole bunch of stuff on there information pictures the whole lot and he's based in adelaide so which is um where i'm originally from so thank you so much for joining us today dr Anuma. thank you very much trish you look after yourself great chatting awesome. have a great day take care then okay bye bye Got a burning question for Trish? Message her on Instagram at Transforming Bodies or join the 12,000 plus people in the Facebook group Plastic Surgery Support Forum for Aussie Chicks.